welcome everybody. We are grateful that you are here. We are grateful that you don't have a positive COVID test and you're sitting in our pews. Jeremy Beller sends his apologies because uh, uh, he, he got one this week, so he wasn't able to be here with us, but uh, he didn't have bad symptoms at all. He just got a positive test like a lot of us have. So keep everybody uh, in your prayers who's having to be at home right now and uh, joining us online. And uh, welcome everybody who is online. We are grateful. And uh, you do what you need to do to be safe. And we are looking forward to the day when we can get past this thing and get back together. Uh, we are continuing this study of the story of Jesus. Tell me the story of Jesus. And today we are telling one of my favorite parts of the story, which is the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus wins this amazing victory over our worst enemy. I don't know who you think is your worst enemy. You probably have some. You probably just flashed on a face right then. Uh, uh, but your real worst enemy in this world is death. And Jesus beat death. That's what this sermon is about. That's what this part of our belief in Jesus is about is that the Son of God took on human flesh, human form, suffered death though he deserved it not, but death could not hold him, and he broke victorious out of that grave, and he won that victory for you and me. There's the whole sermon, but I am going to elaborate a little bit. <laughs> now, there are several places in the scriptures we can go to. The longest place this is discussed anywhere in the Bible is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so if you have your Bibles, please turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul discusses this at length in this chapter. And he, and he gives us some facts about the resurrection and the, some facts about our own resurrection as a result of Jesus' resurrection that are fundamental now to helping us understand what God has planned for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you're saved if you've hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you may have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. Now, that's the same language we just talked about in the communion talk. I received this and I passed it on to you. And so this is another one of those precious, precious places where we get a super early record. This is the first time this, this, what we're about to read, gets written on paper. Most of the stories about Jesus, well, all of the stories before the Gospels were written, were passed on as precious memories from Christian to Christian and from Christian group to Christian group. And they existed as oral uh, records for a long, long time. People had much better memories and much more tricks for remembering in the old days because paper was so expensive and rare. 
And, and, the, and the oral church remembered these stories. This is the first time this gets written on paper that has survived for us. Paul says, I learned this, I received this, and then when I came and preached to you in Corinth, I, I told you about this. And then he proceeds to give us a list of witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, I pass this on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. That part right there, up through verse 7, that is an old, old record. Scholars have argued about this, but, but a, a lot of scholars say this goes all the way back to the Jerusalem church. This goes all the way back to the first days of Jerusalem, when People were trying to instruct the new Christians, here's how you can tell people we know the resurrection happened. Here are the witnesses they can go talk to. They can go ask these people what they saw, what they experienced. It's an amazing thing that right from the beginning, the church said, you just ha did not come out and say, oh, you just have to take the resurrection on faith. You just need to believe it. Don't, don't investigate it. Don't ask questions. The church did the opposite thing. The church said, we want you to go interview these people. We want you to go investigate this for yourself. Ask any questions you want. Christianity is not about darkness. It's about light. It's not about fuzziness. It's about rock-hard truth. They killed Jesus Christ. They thought they had won. And Jesus Christ broke free from the chains of death that no one else has ever had the power to break free from, never to return again. God did that for him. And we have the witnesses to prove it. Go talk to them for yourself. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? That so flips the narrative to me that we hear oftentimes from our skeptical neighbors that Christianity is all about fuzziness and feelings. It's not. There's feelings, I hope. There's passion, I pray. But for goodness sakes, Christianity is grounded on a rock-hard fact. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Gentiles and Jews conspired together to put Jesus on that cross. It was a Roman cross which to the Romans meant this person is an absolute loser. He's worse than a criminal. He is a rebel against Rome. This is what we do to people that we want to take everything away from. 
We, we torture them to death in full view of everyone. That's what it meant to the Romans. To the Jews, going back to Deuteronomy, it meant this person is cursed by God. Anyone who's hung on a tree is under God's curse. And so getting conspiring to get Jesus hung on a cross meant we told you this guy was a liar. We told you this guy Jesus was a fraud. Look, there he is on a cross, obviously proof positive, cursed by God. That's why they conspired together to put Jesus on that cross. And that cross killed Jesus. It didn't just wound him. It killed him dead. And they took him down from that cross. They put him in a rich man's tomb. And they sealed that tomb up. And they mounted a guard to make sure nobody came and stole the body. And on the third day, God reversed all the verdicts. God reversed all the verdicts. And Peter saw. And the apostles saw. And apparently a whole group of people, it's not even recorded in any of the Gospels, a whole group of 500 people saw. And James, we think this is James, the brother of Jesus saw. And then all the apostles, including Thomas, saw. We also know that the women saw. They aren't probably listed here because in Jewish courts and in most Roman courts, women couldn't be called as witnesses. So this is just, you know, the legally uh, allowed witnesses. God wanted you to know that this event happened in history under Pontius Pilate that God reversed Jesus' death. Paul says in verse 8, last of all, after listing all of these, last of all he appeared to me also as to one born at the wrong time. For I am the least of the apostles and don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul says, I... I'm not really deserved to be in this list, and I'm not in the original list. The original list comes all the way from the early church. So, of course, Paul's not in it. He didn't become an apostle until much later. And he quoted the original list as it exists. He says, but I'm on there too, and I'm proud of that fact, though I'm not proud of how I got there. I don't deserve to be on this list, but God put me on there anyway, he says. I'm like a child with a terrible pregnancy and delivery, an abnormally born child, but God saw fit to let me see Jesus resurrected as well. Not like everybody else, I, I saw it in a vision on a road that I was traveling in order to hurt the church of God some more, and God saw, foot, saw fit to, to allow me to be one of these witnesses. And I'm proud now, Paul says, to be a witness. 
I'm proud to tell anybody who's willing to listen and some people who don't want to listen, Jesus rose from the dead. I'm a witness, just like all these others. You can go and ask. I don't deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But, verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet it wasn't me, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach. And this is what you believed, he says to that Corinthian set of Christians. But he could just as well as be seeing it to, saying it to us. First thing about the resurrection of Jesus is this. There would be no Christian church today if Jesus hadn't actually won the victory over death. Period. I, unfortunately, part of my job as an academic, part of what the job I do over at Oklahoma Christian University, is I read scholars who are skeptical that this event took place, sadly. And it amazes me that, that, that there are scholars who try to say, no, there could be, you know, the, the Christian church might have developed the story of the resurrection. There wouldn't have been a Christian church to work on developing the resurrection story if the resurrection hadn't happened. There's no reason for them to stay together. There's no reason for them to face persecution. There's no reason for Paul to be who Paul is. There's no reason for Peter to be who Peter is. If Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, hasn't won the victory. And in fact, if you look at the record in the, gospel, in, in the book of Acts, just go, sometimes, this is a good study for you. It's easy to do. Go to the sermons in the book of Acts, and see how they all end. The sermons in the book of Acts, overwhelmingly, it may be 100%. If it's not 100%, it's close. Every sermon will end by saying, and God raised Jesus from the dead, or something equivalent to it. In other words, the early church didn't say, oh, you know, we have this great faith and it really will make your life better, all of which would have been true. And, and, it can, and, and the life of Jesus corresponds to the prophets, which is also true. The early church said, here's the final reason why you need to be a Christian. God raised Jesus from the dead. We didn't expect it. He kept telling us, but we didn't expect it to happen. God raised Jesus from the dead. And you should believe, because we do. The first point I want to leave you with is that, really. Jesus' victory over death put sharing the gospel on rocket fuel. It still does today. Back then it was crucial, and today it is still crucial. There are people who are going to look at you and roll their eyes when you say Jesus rose from the dead. I don't care. Do you believe it? I'm sorry, I'm going to have to have a verbal affirmation on that one. Do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? Thank you. Hello. <laughs> We're all Christians here, right? Okay. 
If you believe it, then say it. Even if people are skeptical, even if people roll their eyes, you can stand up to a little eye rolling. There are people who stood up to lions. I'm pretty sure you can stand up to a little eye rolling and tell people what you believe about this. Because, I'm telling you, the most eye-rolliest eye-roller out there is afraid they're wrong. And you need to be convinced you're right. And you need to stand up in your convictions and say the truth. Don't be a jerk about it. Don't be mean about it. Just be convinced about it. Because it's still rocket fuel. For, for sharing the gospel. Because that's the first point, and Paul kind of lays that out. You know, this is based on rock-solid facts. Sometime, if you want to talk about the other facts that support the resurrection, come see me. It's, it's part of my job. I do that for a living, so come talk to me about it. It'd be great. All right. I'm going to go out of, I'm going to ask you to go out of 1 Corinthians for a second and skip over to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, and look down at verses 14 and 15. The writer of Hebrews says this, Since the children have flesh and blood, that's us, we have flesh and blood, he, Christ, also shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of the one who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. In a sense, that's just a toss-away line. It's, it's, it's part of a larger discussion of what it means that Jesus came in the flesh, what it means that he now can serve as a sympathetic high priest because he's not just God, he is you and me. He took on our humanity in order to be like us. But he throws in this extra thing. He says, the devil has been manipulating the human race for thousands and thousands of years by scaring us with the threat of death. Death is the devil's rocket fuel for sin. The devil's story uses the threat of death to trick human beings over and over again to compromising what they know is right and to corrupt what they know they should be doing. And the writer of Hebrews says, and don't you realize what's happened in sacrificing himself, going through death, and coming out the other side in resurrection, Jesus has broken the main weapon that Satan has been using to terrify human beings. The devil's been using death all this time to scare us. It doesn't take very much analysis to figure out all the different ways that Satan uses the fear of death in order to to scare us back into sin. Jesus' victory over death sets us free from the biggest threat Satan has to intimidate us back into sin. 
Sometimes it's just absolutely overt. You either recant Jesus Christ or I'm going to feed you to lions. That's the way the Romans did it. That's the way Pliny did it when he was, you know, talking about how he was trying to suppress Christianity. That's the way Mao Zedong did it in China. That's the way Stalin did it in Russia. That's the way Hitler did it to the Christians who wouldn't kowtow to him in Germany. You either renounce your loyalty to Jesus Christ or I'm just going to feed you to the lions or the equivalent thereof. I'm just going to do that. I have the power, I'm going to. But oftentimes it's more subtle than that. I'm going to destroy your ability to live. I'm going to take away all the things that you depend on. Take away your money, take away your livelihood, threaten your income, threaten your family. All of those are covert uses of the power of death, the fear of death. And Satan has been playing those tricks, as I said, for thousands of years on the human race. For thousands of years. Again, in my line of work there, I read scholars who say, oh, you know, I think we'd be better off if we didn't think there was a, a life after death. This was a famous line of Karl Marx and, and the followers of Karl Marx, that, that Christians, because they think there's an afterlife and a heaven, they just aren't as engaged in this world and trying to make this world better. Because they're all putting all their hope in the next world, and so they don't, they don't really engage in this world and trying to, they're just waiting around hoping to, to get taken to heaven, you know. And he was frustrated by that. He thought that's what was going on. Be a little surprising <laughs> to all the people that have ever been helped by the Red Cross. It's not the red question mark, Carl. It's, it's the red cross. All the people who've been housed by Habitat for Humanity, all the people who, around the world who've been helped by hospitals and schools set up by Christians, that Christians are somehow not engaged in helping people in this world. We are a lot. But if, if Karl Marx was willing to say that, to worry about that, that somehow a belief in the next life, a belief in the resurrection, would make you disengaged in this world. He needs to at least have worried a little bit about what fear of death might do to you morally. And here we don't have to use our imagination because we see it being acted out all the time. Right now, in our public arenas, we see businessmen, we see politicians, we see all kinds of public figures who, at least in their actions, indicate that they will consider themselves successful if they die with their crimes unaccounted uh, for in the courts. You know what I mean? If I get away with this, and this makes me a little richer or a little more powerful or a little more successful, and I beat, you know, the, the policeman to the grave, 
that's a successful life. If I die and I end up with more stuff than you do, I win. Tell me that that is not a huge driving force in the psychology of a lot of people in our culture. I don't think you can with a straight face. The fear of death, the fact of death, is huge in Satan's overall game plan. This could be a whole series of sermons, but I don't have that much time. So I just want you to realize that. And what did Jesus Christ do? Now, it's an incredibly costly maneuver on God's part. But here's the plan. God in Christ comes into human shape. Humans who have been plagued by death for so long. And God in the form of Jesus Christ faces this worst enemy of ours. This thing that over and over again Satan uses to tempt us to cave in to sin, to give in to our fears, to go along, to get along. He faces this. He suffers it. And then miracle of miracles. He comes out the other side, never to face death again. And if you believe that's true, if you believe that happened, then you never have to be afraid of death again. Church, you never have to be afraid of death. Satan can't play those tricks on you again. It doesn't mean death's not scary. I don't particularly want to hurry to die. I really don't want my loved ones to die. It hurts me. I've lost several. But what 1 Thessalonians 4 says is true for me. Paul says, I don't want you Christians to grieve like other people who have no hope. When we face death, we face it with hope. Because Jesus Christ went through the worst that death offers. And he came out the other side never to face death again. And you will too. That's the victory over death that Jesus won. And that's the final thing. That's kind of where Paul ends up in this long discourse on death. Back, now let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15. Let's end on that passage. 1 Corinthians 15. Let's skip down to about verse 49. Jesus' victory over death stops death from claiming victory over us. Death's never going to be able to claim victory over us. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 49. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, he's, he's mentioned Adam earlier, representing kind of what it means to be an ordinary human being. Just as we have borne the image of Adam, the earthly man, so we will bear the image of the heavenly man, Jesus Christ. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood, this body that we have, 
the way it is right now, cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I'll tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. We won't all pass through death. But we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised. But they'll be raised... What does it say? You're looking at it. They'll be raised imperishable. And we, Paul's hoping it's going to happen in the next few months, you know, when he writes this, I think. We will all be changed. If you're alive when Jesus comes back, like a snap of a finger, your body will become a body suited for God's presence. It's a body, he's described earlier, that can't decay. It's a body that, where this body is kind of shameful and not that glorious, it's a body that just radiates glory and power and strength. That's what's going to happen, he says. We will all be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality. That is a resurrection from the dead that can never face death again. That's what immortality means. When the perishable has been closed with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up with victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. Power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Brothers and sisters, if, if you do die, death will not claim you forever. If you do die, they will take you, they will put you in the grave. That's not something to hurry along. Take care of yourselves, I love you. But if you do die, they will put you in the grave. And nowadays, they're going to put a honking big piece of concrete over you to hold you down. Guess what? When Jesus comes back, you're going to hear his voice. And that concrete won't be able to hold you back. I don't know how much you can bench press right now. I'm, I'm looking at, you know, Cliff and Doug and some others who can really bench press a lot. I'm pretty sure you can't bench press that much concrete. But that day, the weakest person in here, I'm not going to tell you who you are, but I know, uh, the weakest person in here will push that dirt and that concrete out of the way as easy as a piece of paper, and come rushing out of the grave to go see Jesus. That's what's going to happen. That's what's going to happen. And if you're still alive when that moment happens, in an instant you receive that same resurrection body. And we are ready to be with God in the direct presence of God for all the rest of eternity. Our hope, our faith, 
is not in vain. That's the way we live, church. We live in the victory Jesus won almost 2,000 years ago. We live in the victory when he defeated death for us. And right now, today, whatever this world does to us, it can be bad, but it's not fatal. And we live in that victory. Let's pray. Dear God and Father, we thank you so much for the victory of Jesus Christ. We thank you so much that you have shared his victory with us. We know we don't deserve it, but God, we want to deserve it more tomorrow than we do today. God, we want to be your people and to use and not squander this precious gift of hope and power that you have granted to us. God, give us the strength tomorrow to live in the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. To, to laugh at the tricks that Satan tries to pull on us and to use our faith as a shield to keep him away and to quench his fiery darts so that we can move ahead to do what you have asked us to do. These things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you need to respond to God's invitation, if you need to ask for prayers, or if today is the day that you want to take your share of the inheritance God has provided, to put on the name of Jesus Christ, to be married to him, to be washed clean of your sins, and to live a new life. We can baptize you right now. Why don't you come forward? Tell us what we can do for you as we stand and sing.